Hello, Edgard. Hi, Gregor. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Doing pretty well. It's the first time we're recording in the same space since pre-COVID, I think. It's been, yeah, three years, something like that. Time flies. So, as we start this new episode of a podcast, what is our audience expected to hear from us? Today we are going to start what could be a series of three episodes on questioning things. And the first thing we are going to question is theories. And doing that, the podcast is going to be articulated around, um, let's say, three main themes. The first one would be, is it always bad to not adapt the beliefs of our time? which will uh, lead us to um, think about the question of how, what, and why. Then we are going to talk about whether we can know the why of everything. Are new developments always better? How psychoanalysis is, in my sense, always a disruption, or has, should be, at least. And finally, how do we distinguish what to keep and what to change? Just to clarify, when we are talking about theories, we are referring to psychoanalytic theories or the theoretical frames we use in our work. So indeed, as our audience know, psychoanalysis has become a very fractured field with plenty of theories. Beyond the four classical theories now, we have branches and branches and There seem to be some fads, meaning some new trends that people take on. And Gregoire and I are moving into this podcast questioning, why do we take things on, meaning th a new theoretical frames, uh, what do they bring, how we question them, and so on. If you want, you can always contact us through our email, discussions on psychoanalysis at pm.me or through Facebook, Twitter, and any other means necessary. My name is Edward Francisco Danielson. My name is Grégoire Pierre. Welcome to Discussions on Psychoanalysis. About our ability to question theories, one thing we were wondering is, and it might sound very uh, candid, but straightforward, is it always bad to not adopt the new popular understanding of our time? Is it always good to adopt the new popular understanding of our time? Like, How do we determine what is good, what is bad? Of course, to put the question like this is provocative because it's always a bit in between. But I think a second is that something that we are confronted with, especially like what's happening today with where things are moving around us more maybe than they used to. Mm -hmm. Edgar, do you have uh, any idea on that? I think we need to expand a little bit about what do we mean by popular understandings of our time? 
I agree with you. The way we're posing the question is uh, binary, bad, good. And we tend to be more nuanced than that, but we can Do we? Yeah. <laughs> we? We? Of course we are more nuanced. Well, we try, we try. Uh, you, <laughs> no, we are. We're, let's be rigid. We are. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, but popular understanding that we're talking about what is in the news in terms of uh, mental health, what we see in the listservs about theory, or in our classes, in seminars? Are we talking about diagnoses that we hear our patients talking about them? I want to say every one mm -hmm. of the above. Mm -hmm. But I could give, uh, maybe we could start the discussion with an historical example. Okay. For instance, but we should certainly expand. When I moved to the U.S., I discovered how important it was in here, at least in New York, to come up with relational psychoanalysis. Mm -hmm. And relational psychoanalysis was very popular. Yes. It seemed to attract a lot of new candidates, and it seems like you couldn't go wrong. You needed to get out of ego psychology. You need to get out of, I mean, a representation at least of ego psychology. And Coming from France, I was very surprised. First, because uh, eco-psychology didn't really work in France. People didn't really use that. And relational psychoanalysis, it didn't really work either. Or maybe, to be more specific, it didn't work as an independent category. No, it's not. To some, it is. <laughs> to, I agree, but it's not. Yeah. yeah. yeah okay. <laughs> This is the binary we were talking about. <laughs> That's settled. <coughs> Good. Now, yeah, to some it is. We have to be fair to, some, to our yeah, audience. To some people, relational psychoanalysis, it's as cool in itself. You and I don't see it, but yeah. No, we don't see it like that. But some people do, and they are very serious about it. Mm -hmm. And sure. so this question of how do we relate to theory and what's new, what's popular, to me, started in my journey in psychoanalysis in the U.S. with that. Mm -hmm. uh, what the hell were people talking about? Is there any value to it? Well, it took me quite a while first to understand what people were meant by relational psychoanalysis. Mm -hmm. Then that's when I built my opinion that did not require for my standard to be considered an independent school. It was a layer of work. Yes. And actually a layer that can sometimes be extremely useful, but mm -hmm. just a layer. It started to feel like a difficulty to know how to address my position being why not, but not everything. Yeah. And now we have, um, to the American psychoanalysis, the idea that we should try to work with poor people is new. Mm -hmm. To me, from France, it's not new at all. What do we do with that? Also, what I'm going to address is something I had even less time and space to think about. But I've read messages in forums about the question of racism, the question of white supremacy. And I've read things about how to work or how to think about transgender. Okay. And I often wonder what to do with it. Because, for instance, at a point, as we discussed um, two months ago, I think, or last month, being homosexual was considered by psychoanalysts as something of a disease. It was pathological. Yeah. 
from today's perspective, of course it's not. And to go back to a previous understanding of homosexuality, again, I'm not going to say every time that the term homosexuality is problematic by itself, but I'm using it in a way that people understand the concept of what I'm referring to. We would not go back to making it pathological. So to me, it's an experience of, okay, this is a good new because it was bad before. But now I see text about the poor. Should we work with the poor? I'm like, of course we should. Do the poor have an unconscious? Yes, of course they do. I feel like this is, this is good. But when I read something, the discourse around racism, and I read some discourse about trans identity, mm-hmm. I'm feeling more nuanced about what's happening. And I'm wondering before maybe we go into, or maybe it's not possible, but before we go into the detail, if there is a way for us to some ideas, some rules to get a sense of what should we keep, what should we not keep? And how do we interact with, to put it very simply, change? Do you have any sense, Edgar? From my perspective, I think establishing a rule or guidelines might be a trap. We might fall back into creating a structure. And if something doesn't fit the structure, that might not be explored. So the same way that the politics of identity, for example, deny the possibility of questioning. In the psychoanalytic room, some people might experience that it is not appropriate to question, to explore identities. So the underlying rule is that we don't do that. But then we fail as psychoanalysts, I believe, when we fall back into, these are the social guidelines established at this moment, what is politically correct. So if we move into creating some rules about how we determine what is good, what is bad, what needs to be questioned, if we should adopt or not new uh, and popular understandings of our time, I think the, if we are going to have a rule, the rule would be that there is always a question mark at the end. There is always a question mark. But if we said that, mm-hmm. could we then say that we should go back to put a question mark whether gay people are pathological? How do we determine things that we say, okay, yeah, we were really out of line, mm-hmm. we were wrong, and things where we say we should keep questioning? Because mm-hmm. we could say, why do we question trans identity? Maybe in 10 years from now, people are just going to be, yeah, there's no question about it. Why do we, I mean, when I read that white people have to be racist and other people don't. Maybe in 10 years from now, everybody and myself included will feel like, yeah, of course, we shouldn't question it. Mm -hmm. So how do we make the distinction? That's a very good question, because the question is not why. The question is how, the question is what. So how are you experiencing yourself as a gay person what does it mean to you to be a gay person that is the question or the questions the old question of why are you gay i think derails the psychoanalytic process again because there is in the why there is a an underlying judgment potentially and second 
there is something about pathological, non-pathological. Again, the binary. Why are you this? Well, you can turn the question around. Why are you like that? Why are you straight? That's how God made me. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that obvious, Edgar? <laughs> Didn't you ever go That's to church? <laughs> That's a funny one. <laughs> I know. Well, yeah, but just to, as a footnote, sexual orientation is the compromise formation, uh, very complex. It is indeed. It is indeed, so very complex. Any, straight or gay or <laughs> straight whatever. Straight or gay, it's, it's always a, a, a compromise formation. So then when I said we need to put a question mark at the end, what I mean to clarify is the questions are not why, but how and what. Because I think that depathologizes the clinical experience. I agree with you. Mm -hmm. But let's try to free the why from the accusation uh -huh. that it can be used for. If we don't use why, aren't we losing in psychoanalysis the space of understanding where things come from? Mm -hmm. It's really a legit question to me. Because, for instance, we've talked recently about the Oedipal um, complex. And to me, the Oedipal complex is an interesting idea. Mm -hmm. Sometime in my work, I hear discourses, fantasies that make me think, oh yeah, that may be what Freud heard and maybe mm -hmm. what Freud reacted yes. to. I could see it. I mean, it's not going to be a big disclosure, but I could see it in my own analysis too. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, how much does it explain is unclear. In addition to that, I wonder if we stop trying to explain from a psychoanalytic point of view, are we also giving up to some kind of neurological or biological ground? Not necessarily. For instance, are we born gay? Are we born straight? Are we born trans? Are we mm -hmm. born this and that? Are we born a thief? Are we born an intellectual? Mm -hmm. The why also might be the etymology. No, uh, how do you say it? Etiology. Yeah, that's the science of the causes or... Yeah. So is there still an interest and even more than interest, is there still a possibility to look for why things are happening. How the hell do we understand why some people are straight and some people are gay? Mm -hmm. The Oedipal complex is, from my point of view, not enough. No, it is not enough. It's certainly mm -hmm. the object choice starts much earlier. Yeah. But is there a point in our work to question the why? And is there a point maybe somewhere else to question the why? Or should we just say, well, you're just like that now, which are also important questions. Mm -hmm. I mean, clinically, they are more important. I mean, on a day-to-day -day basis, how and what? Clearly, mm -hmm. like, how are you mm -hmm. straight, how are you gay, how are you X, Y, and Z? Mm -hmm. That's more important than why. Yes. But from a point of view of psychoanalysis as a theory, mm -hmm. where should we put the why and how? Two things. I would get into the why but it's not at the cost of the how and the what. For working with a patient, the why w will begin to take form, and sometimes after a long period in analysis, when the patient is already 
has developed enough ego strength to tell some truth about the why, tell some truth to themselves about the why. So I, I think it happens, at least in my practice, I don't see it happening at the forefront of the treatment. It happens uh, as we move farther from the initial phase of the treatment. And second, in terms of theory, of course, our theory should be larger. Our models should explain things. But those models need to be flexible enough and based on clinical work. I have a hunch that some models that we used some time ago were really um, stretched to thing by the... I think Freud stretched a few th <laughs> uh, of his models to accommodate certain things. Do you things. have any uh, example in mind? Let's look at the, uh, you know, Freud published only a few cases, clinical cases, mm -hmm. if we think of that. And in some of the cases, I find some of them fascinating how everything is built out of what the father saw in the kid. Oh, the little ants. <laughs> little ants, for, exa <laughs> for example. A distance. It was Zoom, it's, even, it even was more than Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> it was more than Zoom. And from the father trying to, I guess, trying to mold the, what he, he was seeing in the kid to what Freud had been publishing, it seems to me that it, it looks too much of a, trying to fit into a template. So, of course, things should be the other way around, you know. We should create theory out of our clinical practice. That's what I believe. The why is not excluded, but I don't think it should have a primacy. And theory needs to be grounded in the clinical practice. Are there things in which we maybe can't know why? Because in some ways, I was giving the example of are we born X, Y, and Z? In some ways, I think in an analysis, we could have a sense of why someone maybe become a thief, maybe become a musician. Yeah. One not excluding the other. It's, mm -hmm. Those things might, I mean, many things might happen in the same person. But the question, for instance, of sexual orientation, mm -hmm. do we have anybody who eventually understood why they became one or th the other? There are good theoretical papers that we might use, uh, models that are interesting. You know, Ken Corbett's model, the square, you know, the physiology, psychology, culture, and politics. These four forces playing at some conscious level, but also at an unconscious level. So that's a different model. It's not the Oedipal model. So models can be created. But where do they stem from? Like, do you have a, do you have a patient who eventually is going to be like, oh, now I understand why I'm straight? I have had patients, and I, th I think I have patients that continue to be surprised by some moment in the analysis when they realize, oh, now I understand why about something, the why about why they relate to other people in this way or that way. So that, that is, I think, more grounded in the clinical experience than a theory. The patient is being surprised 
Yeah, there are layers of our identity mm-hmm. of ourselves that we can get a sense of why. But it seems that there are also other layers where theory is really trying to throw out some hypothesis. Yeah. Because in clinical practice, we don't get deep enough to deconstruct enough. Yeah, I agree. Yes. And object choice is one. Mm-hmm. Certainly the, the feeling of feeling of, of a man or a woman is mm-hmm. another. Yes. You might have theory, like uh, the mirror stage with Lacan that comes up as, uh, as a theory of how people can uh, identify themselves, like the question of their body, the question of uh, what it means, etc., through the projection. The, the, the mirror being, for those who don't know, the mirror being the, the eyes of the parents. It's not a literal mirror, mm-hmm. <laughs> just to be clear. Then we might offer some theory that could explain Mm-hmm. But I've never witnessed, neither as a clinician or as a patient, mm-hmm. moments where I'm like, oh, that came back. I mean, those very archaic moments. Mm-hmm. So I feel like this is where theory, I, I don't know what to do with the why. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's important, but I don't really know exactly how to balance the fact that on the one hand, we need as a theory to give hypotheses, to offer hypotheses on mm-hmm. why uh, we move from one object choice to another, why we feel this way or another. But on the other hand, I feel not at ease because I feel like I don't understand how grounded it is in our practice. The whys, the finding the whys and fear, some deeper. S- uh, some deeper. Some some deep, deep level. I can see how for some layers of life, yeah, mm-hmm. many experiences of life, you can see patients be like, oh, I understand why I've been jealous. I understand why, I mean, why I'm keeping this person away, why I'm keeping this person in that way or another. Mm-hmm. But some aspects seem to be very difficult. And what comes for around the identity seems to be among those very deep layers. Mm-hmm. or at least very intertwined layers that mm-hmm. m- seem hard to analyze in a sense of analyzing, you know, decompose and understand mm-hmm. what's in it. I'm thinking that the why, for me, falls under the category of grand interpretations, these large, convoluted interpretations. I think the why falls into that category. You are like this because that, 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 that. We go back in time and to the embryo almost sometimes. And <laughs> well, sometimes. Well. <laughs> how much can we know? Like, it's really a lot of how speculation. Much? can be exactly. useful clinically. But. It can be. A, that's the point my supervisor used to make. In what ways this will propel the treatment forward. So I think that's why I don't use or give so much emphasis to the why. I think the how and the what seem to be more experienced near for the patient. While the why, even though might be quite exciting to explain things that way, it's a grand interpretation that perhaps has some sort of masturbatory... So it's good for theories. <laughs> 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 yes. <laughs> some, it's kind of a, a masturbation, you know. Yeah, and, and where does it where, where does it lead, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, to a lot of pleasure. <laughs> to, a, to a lot of pleasure, <laughs> exactly.
This leads me to a question. Should we question the idea of an always enlightened progress? Meaning that in this podcast, we've been open about questioning the latest, mostly social understanding of racism. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've been. We've been expressing some concern or some interest into staying curious with people who present themselves as trans. But we could very easily, by having those stands, be considered conservative mm -hmm. and not conservative in a good way. Mm -hmm. Because if we think that progress is always better or that everything that is new, modern progress, is always better, then keeping an, an old stand is bad. Is it something you think about? Yeah, I think about it. I think in, in the concept, within the phrase enlightened progress, there is a fantasy there that is connected to modernism in the sense of things will get better and better and better. So there's some sort of fantasy associated with that phrase. And therefore, from that perspective, the one who questions is seen as the one who is a stumbling block for progress. Because the one who questions, in fact, becomes a safety pin that punctures the balloon of a fantasy. So in terms of being conservative or progressive, I think we, we need to, especially in the United States with these words are so charged, that we need to understand that what do we conserve, for example, what we do conserve, what would be better to conserve or not. And, of course, what does it mean to have progress? Because I think there's a lot of fantasies associated with that. This is an example that's probably not going to stay. But currently in France, there's an election going on mm -hmm. for the parliament. And we might have, I hope, a very leftist government. And the right in power currently keeps saying people should not vote for them because they don't want to obey European laws. Just like in East of Europe, Orban, a president who's a fascist. And what I found interesting is that eventually the leftist uh, movement said, well, it's very dishonest to say that because, yes, we do not want to obey every European rules, but the ones we don't want to obey are not about gay and lesbians' rights or about abortion rights. The ones we don't want to obey are about pollution, are mm -hmm. uh, about privatization of public services, are uh, mm -hmm. about uh, cutting jobs, etc. Mm -hmm. And we should stay critical of conservative, mm -hmm. of whatever we want to conserve, just as much as we should be critical of the progress. Correct. Yeah. As a psychoanalyst within an institute, as an independent psychoanalyst, the things are I think are different. But as soon as you try to be part of the movement, this space of questioning what we keep and what we don't keep seems difficult to achieve. Mm -hmm. I mean, you are more in an institute than I am now. Mm -hmm. Yes. But when I read some messages on forums, I just don't know how to approach what I see. And I feel like the group doesn't seem to hold enough space to not be frightened by questioning 
the good values or the good intentions that are being displayed. Mm -hmm. I think one of the layers, of course, is that an institution will try to remain in place by all means necessary. And second is that, as we all know, institutes are getting older and smaller and therefore there's a constant fear of not being relevant anymore. Mm. And so people hold on to some positions that somehow have the power of reminding them of the olden days. That's my take sometimes, that what I hear, what I see, it's more about holding on to the fantasy that things will continue to be the way they were when reality has changed completely. Uh, it's funny because I was hearing your comments uh, in some ways differently in the sense that now that you're mentioning it, I'm wondering how much of the virtue signaling I'm seeing. I'm not questioning the intention of people who express that. I'm actually, I feel like people who are expressing that, people I saw, I'm fairly convinced that they are well-meaning. But I'm wondering if maybe there could be also a sense of we have to be relevant. Mm -hmm. And maybe the problem with psychoanalysis is that psychoanalysis is, the psychoanalysis I see as psychoanalysis, at least, is always hitching. Like uh, when the skin itches? Yeah, it uh -huh. itches. Like it's, you can never be really comfortable with psychoanalysis unless you are... I mean, I would say the easiest way to say it, unless you're lying to yourself or unless you are trying to make things too simple. Psychoanalysis is always going to put you out of bound. I agree on, with you on that. And yes. the problem is, socially speaking, it's not, there's no space for that. Not in the world we are living, particularly. Yeah, there might be something about America especially. Maybe, because of the polarization. Yeah. So I'm wondering how the attempt to reach a social recognition might come with an abandonment of questioning in a way psychoanalysis does, meaning that nothing is as it looks, that everything is a compromise, a multi-layered compromise, that everything is multi-determined. Today, I think the, uh, one of the terms that is becoming more popular is intersection. I feel like psychoanalysis is about intersection all the time, from what I understand of uh, intersection, at least. It's about how the crossing of identities and how they, each person is going to have its own version of it and how the yes. complexity of it. And mm -hmm. there's no way to make it simple. Psychoanalysis should problematize things, not make them simple. It's about creating a more complex understanding, not a simplified understanding. How can we distinguish, if there's a way, by the way, what to keep and what to change? Mm -hmm. When things are moving on, do we have a guideline? Do we have a perspective, a psychoanalyst, or things that we should give up? I mean, probably pathologizing, Mm -hmm. in the way that gay people have been, in the way women have been, mm -hmm. in the way people of color have been, in the way leftists have been also. Everything that wouldn't fit the WASP understanding of life, the white mm -hmm. WASP identity. Besides that, do you have a sense of values that are organizing 
us? That's a good question. I uh, Now that you say values and organizing, I think there should be some organizing principles that are connected to curiosity, to surprise, to the I- idea that our actions and our thoughts, symptoms, are always overly determined, that our decisions are always compromised formation. So the I think the organizing principle, so to speak, is complexity. That is what I think should be a guiding experience, that if we are finding ourselves simplifying instead of observing the complexity of something, then we might be missing the point of psychoanalysis. So I think one value for me would be, and one organizing principle would be complexity. There has to be others. As you're talking, I'm thinking that, well, of course, the idea of the unconscious, the idea of mm-hmm. conflict. I mean, of course. I'm actually saying, of course, but I think relational psychoanalysis is pretty much uh, putting on the side unconscious and uh, especially conflict. I mean, I even remember an instructor, he was supposed to teach us ego psychology. If he listens, he will recognize himself. And he said, yeah, there are some moments where there's no conflict. Mm-hmm. From my French perspective, French basically be a broad understanding mm-hmm. of it, okay? I was like, uh, what the hell are you talking about? Mm-hmm. It's impossible. There's conflict mm-hmm. everywhere. And he said, no, for instance, when you say fuck, there's no conflict. And he was supposedly, if I understood correctly, defending some kind of ego psychology understanding of the psyche. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm thinking that there are at least American attempts to get rid of the idea of conflict, at least mm-hmm. in some areas. Why not? But from my understanding of psychoanalysis, no, everything is a conflict. That there's no purity. But maybe it's me, you know. It's maybe it's mm-hmm. the values that I really adhere. I mean, I really think that there's nothing such there's no such thing as purity. Mm-hmm. That would be a guiding principle, and. I would say, I, mean, I, I guess it's implied in in everything we've said before, but I would say if there's a value for us to keep, that would be to be curious and also to be respectful. Yeah. And that is sometimes difficult in a sense that, as we discussed before, sometimes curiosity can be experienced by patients as disrespectful. Mm. Yeah, you can say that. Because you are bringing up their fantasies as fantasies instead of concretizing their fantasies and to say, no, oh, you think you're that? Of course you're that. Well, very good. Let's move on. You know, mm. I have a sense that there's something about being respectful of the fragility of humanity. And that goes into being very sensitive to the way we talk about our clinic. I mean, I think that's something that has been driving the podcast from the beginning even some of the things that led to its creation. For instance, and this is something we're going to address more in the future podcast, but the question of the position of the analyst. Yes. Because to me, there's a big problem in that aspect of our work in a sense that we, in some ways, we all agree that the analyst doesn't know everything. But in other ways, in many other ways... A lot of our theory, a lot of our reasonings are based on the idea that necessarily the analyst knows better. Or 
as some people say that the analyst holds the position of reality as if the analyst is not conflicted or has fantasies and if you remove that if you radically remove the fact that the analyst would hold reality would know better systematically then you find yourself in a very fluid situation correct That's the word that comes mm -hmm. to my mind but i think that is a value for us to hold on to but it can be anxiety provoking yeah. I guess this is it for today. Thank you for listening to us. As always, please reach out to us if you have questions, if you would like to expand, if you would like to add more info to what we have said, or would you like to hear some other subjects from us? Uh, we're open to listen to your thoughts and questions. Thank you. And see you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you.